all the moves I've made, I've made because my wife has helped me. Right. My, my, my career partner um, has pushed me at the moment, and she gets credit for this one as well. I probably wouldn't have done it. I would have been too scared, you know, like, so, like, go for it, whatever. So whenever you have a partner who's willing to take those risks with you, it makes it a little bit easier. So I, I have to give Mary Beth some credit there. Um, the biggest move was leaving Cadbury because, I, you know, it's really in a good position. I had done a lot of things. We had done a lot. But to become... A president, for, you know, it, I, I was named the president of, of uh, RC Polo to be a you know, to to be to take that leap. It wasn't going to happen for me at Cadbury anytime soon. It didn't appear. It ended up happening very quick, as I just told you the story, right? Um, so I took that leap. I pretty, I would have never taken that leap if I didn't have people in my corner. That was the big. That was the, and I was scared to death. Yes. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Jack Belsito is one of the most prominent figures in the beverage industry. He worked his way up the corporate ladder, and when the time was right, he made incredibly smart moves that landed him as the CEO of Snapple Beverage Group, Voss, the well-known water company, and even stepped up once to run the growing health aid kombucha company. Under his leadership, Voss became one of the fastest growing water companies in the United States with, get this, 32 consecutive quarters of growth. With over 30 years of experience, it's hard to even remember all of his success. But he was also president of Mott's USA, an RC Cola company. And most recently, he was a managing partner at First Beverage Group. To say he has been successful in the CPG world would be an understatement. For someone so successful, though, I found him to be one of the most down-to-earth people I have ever interviewed on How Success Happens. It's always such a pleasure when you see that. I did start out by asking Jack about what it was like growing up. And did he know that one day he would become such an incredible leader? Hey, Jack, thanks for joining me on today's episode of How Success Happens. It's a pleasure having you here. Someone I played basketball with for 15 years, but don't even know your full story because we, we we never talk. We We just play. But it's pretty incredible <laughs> when overlooking and knowing about you and and being either a president or a CEO of some of the most famous beverage brands in the world from Snapple to Mott to Voss Water. I, I mean, just it seems like you've almost touched all of these iconic brands at the highest levels. And what I want to ask is going back to growing up, if you could tell me kind of what that was like, where you grew up. And at that time, if if you felt or knew or there was inspiration that for you, that one day you would become this great leader. Oh, boy. What a question. <laughs> that's, a lot. that's very kind of you. First of all, thank you for the kind words. And the best thing about our basketball game is none of us knew what, what we were doing outside the gym. And that was the best part about that game, right? Um, and I've had that said to me many times, both ways. That I had no idea, like, we're playing with, you know, people who go on to do great things, you know, including yourself. So, uh, yes. I can't say there's a moment or anything that was inspirational. 
I played a lot of athletics. Uh, it had, I think I grew a lot of confidence through that leadership in those environments. I think it's pretty transferable to many things that I've done in business. A lot of what I do now is a lot of coaching and there's a lot of coaching aspect to it. So there are a lot of athletic overlaps there. I know those are kind of tired at times, but uh, I would say that there was nothing in my early childhood other than athletic progress that I could have pointed to say, well, that that connects it or that helped. I, you know, went to school, made sure I was, you know, tried to stay out of trouble, grew up in a neighborhood and um, went to school where you went to school, obviously, and just followed what was next. Never really thought about it too far ahead. That might be disappointing to people. But I took care of what was in front of me. And I think that's probably the most the thing that got me along and, and progressing the fast. Yeah. You know, it, it, we talk about we both went to Boston University and just from conversations, uh, you've told me that, uh, well, I know you played baseball there and continued to play baseball too after it was a big part of your life. You also told me you had a coach or the manager of your team who really gave you a lot of good insight. And was there anything from that manager that really helped you as you were going through college that you still even apply today within business? Yes, I think um, something very particular. That's a really good question. His name was Bill Mahoney, by the way. Still alive up there in Boston and a legend, local legend uh, in baseball up there. Um, and he was my coach, but he had at the time what seemed to be unorthodox things to say to me. But one of them stuck, and, and it was the concept. I'm not sure he called it this, but I, I'll call it this visualization. And he would often talk about just, Jack, just think about success. Think about what you're going to do to succeed when you step into the batter's box or balls hit it. You just envision you making the play. Doing that. And, and I have to say that I have employed that I sp- spoken in front of large crowds, on TV interviews, all sorts of different things. And that conceptually has helped. Like, think about it ahead of time. Think about being successful. Envision yourself being successful. I think um, those are good confidence building type of things. Yeah. And, and you continued playing baseball post college. And, and I love the game. A lot of people do. Anything that you've taken from that game, obviously, not just from Bill that also has helped you to whether it's putting teams together at companies or just really succeeding? Well, I think um, I was in not, in not a position when I was playing to put teams together, but um, there was obviously opportunities to lead teams. And I think leading by example, working hard, you know, being the first one to practice, the last one to leave, taking the extra batting practice, doing whatever it needs to have your team win and have another, other people see that and have that be an example. So I think leading by example is something that um, might translate over. I never thought about it too much that way. I was just having fun. Yeah. What I love about your story, I was just talking to someone the other night, what I think even a lot of times in terms of being an entrepreneur, even harder, I think, and a lot of our listeners who know and work in corporate America will probably agree It's very hard to navigate your way up the ladder, which you obviously were able to do. And I want you to talk about coming out of school and your first job and working in sales with, I think, Procter & Gamble 
uh, major CPG company. And and what was what was that like? And and your learning experiences from from early on. Yeah, so um, I learned the value of mentorship real quickly. I had a great initial boss. His name was Al Shumpers. I didn't think we were going to talk about this, but this is interesting. 201-899-2075. That's his phone number. I love it. You know, I, lo- is, I love it. And I haven't called it in years, but I hope nobody calls that now that I think about that. Um, but uh, hundreds of calls, pre-cell phone, right? Side of the road. What am I doing? Oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Patient voice on the other side. I was part of a management program. They, they uh, came on, on campus at BU and they recruited a few of us. I was lucky to get into that group. They moved me to New Jersey. I knew nothing. I was scared to death. I had one tether and it was this gentleman who was my boss. And that was a valuable lesson in mentorship of how caring he was, no matter what stupid question I was asking next. And there were many of them. I would say the other thing that was interesting in that group, but I think it's just a real tribute to Procter and Gamble. I was uh, unique to the unit that I was in when I first started Procter and Gamble. There were eight of us or so. They called it a unit. We were selling paper products, and I was what they—I was the only person what they called the developmental candidate. So everybody else was not going to be promoted, and I was only going to be there if I did my job right. Well, I was passing through, and they were helping me. You can imagine that could have created a great deal of animosity among other players. The opposite was true. I had career salesmen, 20, 30 years older, mostly men at the time, 20, 30 years older than me, call me at night. How am I doing? Am I doing the expense? Am I okay? Can they meet me for coffee tomorrow? Incredible team support, taking pride in my development as a group, not necessarily theirs. And that was a great teamwork lesson from Proctor. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing because when a lot of people look at corporate America and and it's a lot about politics in a lot of ways and we your person who works for you is looking to get your job and then you know, it's very hard and t- tells me something about yourself and personality and knowing you that these people actually cared and and wanted you to succeed. So what was it about your first foray and tell us in getting into the business, the beverage business, which you have had this accomplished career over the past 20 some odd years? What was it that made you go from Procter & Gamble and then, I guess, start as a salesperson at Pepsi? Yeah. So um, Pepsi was recruiting aggressively from Procter, as many of the beverage companies were at that time. Procter had really developed, along with some other of their peers, uh, strong credibility in, in commercial training. And it was strong. It was fantastic. I was put through a rigorous training process. What a benefit. What a great benefit for me to have that. So I was able able to play that forward. I still write memos the same way. I mean, certain things that just are ingrained in you. Proctor had moved me uh, overnight, particularly to uh, to Buffalo, out of New Jersey. And I was um, up there and Pepsi recruited me away. And I was only in, in, uh, in Buffalo for a year. I didn't necessarily want to be there. It ended up being a great place. I have lifelong friends from there. It is a wonderful place to live. At the time of my life, it wasn't where I wanted to be. And when Pepsi came knocking, I was, I was listening. And so they did. And I moved to uh, Virginia after a year up there uh, and started my, uh, my, my uh, career in beverages and have done beverages ever since. Yeah, it sounds like when uh, the Colts left Baltimore in the middle of the night to go to Indy, it, it sounds like that was something they were like, hey, you're 
you're going here, but you obviously you dealt with that, understood that, and then made made some changes and which is great. Take me then starting in the beverage business and then working yourself to the top level at uh, some of these the companies we discussed. What was it that you think you were able to do that took you from that point, really as a young guy in your 20s, to eventually becoming CEO of Snapple or CEO of Voswater, president of Mott's? What, what do you think it was and how did you get there? Uh, you don't get there without help, right? You work hard for sure, but lots of people work hard, lots of people produce. Like you need help. You need people who take care, take an interest in you. I had that at Cadbury. I had mentors there who were running the company who took an interest in me. I think I, you'd have to ask them some of those questions, but I, you know, if I could think about maybe a couple of things, but one in particular, like I was curious, I was, I was a salesperson, but I was curious beyond sales. Like I wanted to know why we were you know, I wanted to know the why behind it. Why are we pushing this? You know, what's the profitability here? Like, and in those days, or at least in the company I was at, companies I was at, you know, there was silos, you know, for, this is all you need to know, go sell, right? But that wasn't enough for me. And so I started asking questions that were curiosity-based questions. No, well, I need to know this. I'd like to know this. If we knew this, maybe we could do this better. And so I just kept pushing on that sort of strategic front to try to be heard and to try to, have some credibility because oftentimes you were cast as a salesperson and just go sell, you know, we'll tell you what to do. And so that dynamic uh, did exist in CPG. And I, I probably still exist in companies. I don't let it exist in any of my companies, but that was there. And I think that probably caught the attention of some senior leaders. And then you get in a room and you talk and they take an interest and then you produce and you keep producing, you keep getting uh, more interest. I think that's the simplicity of it. It's a lot, lot of stuff in between, but I, probably that curiosity about things that were beyond what I was doing. How could we help actually everybody gain together? It wasn't really about me taking credit for it. And I think those are the things that probably were noticed. And yeah. So talk to me, you know, you're at Cadbury and obviously working your, your way up major beverage company. And then you tell me, but uh, I believe early 2000s, your name CEO of Snapple. How did you go from there to the company naming you CEO of Snapple, which is an iconic, iconic beverage. And at the time, what's amazing is, you know, what you did after with it. But how did you get there? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, it was a couple of steps that ended up with me at Snap on a little, little, little bit of a loop, which I'll explain. I was working at Cadbury and I was uh, appointed through some of the promotions into a role as the um, vice pre- senior vice president of, uh, at the time they called it franchising, which is more about distribution and route to market licensing. Who was going to get a license to this brand in this particular market? So that job introduced me really to all of the ownership and beverage. Because now I was talking about the lifeblood, what brands are going to be licensed where, to which distribution units that were going to be our partnership. So it was a powerful position that got me at a very young age engaged with senior leadership in all of the industry. So and that that sort of put me in a different place senior at a very young age. I was still in my early 30s at the time. So that was a huge break um, through that job and through really the aggressiveness of Cadbury. They, they were on a mission to become 
the third largest soft drink business in the world. They started with a very, very small share. When I got there, we were a half a share of the business. That's KDP today. And it wasn't, it just didn't happen, you know, it was because they worked it. Um, and through a lot of that stuff, um, ended up meeting a bunch of people, ended up negotiating a number of deals. We did the very first bottling deal, had some very interesting people on the other side of me there on that, on that bottling deal. And I met, I met one gentleman negotiating part of the contract, a gentleman by the name of Nelson Peltz. So Nelson was running at the time. Triarch. He now runs Tryon. He's now a very famous active investor, activist investor. And um, I negotiated a very difficult set of things with Nelson for about two months. And then when we finally finished, he called me a couple of days later and said, you know, it'd be great if you came and worked for me. We're about to buy this company Snapple, right? So he bought it. They offered me a job. And I, and I went to, to Snap. I left Ken. And went to Snap. He had bought it from Quaker, a bunch of business cases. He bought it for $300 million, borrowed most of the money. Two years later, after we turned it around, after I went there and worked, we sold it back to Cad. And then Cad made me the CEO. So I had left in good shape. I had left with good, you know, with good. And so when I went back, Mike Weinstein, who was, I have to give credit, was my mentor there. And he engineered a lot of that turnaround. And he didn't want to be the CEO at Cadbury. He wanted to do other things. And so they appointed me. And that's how I got to that job. So all sorts of funny things happened in between there. And people said, yeah, you must have been there, a mole in there for three years. I'm like, I wish I was that smart, but that's not what happened. So it just was fortuitous. And then I was back there. And that was a great role and a fun role. Yeah, you know, it's incredible to think how it happens. And and there's nothing better. It was like you were on a, a two-month interview. But you're also a real young guy at the time, right? And were there nerves there get to going to work for Nelson, taking that job? How were you feeling at that time just from a personal perspective of taking on this major role? Once I'm sure you got over the excitement, what was that like for you? Yeah, I think the biggest move, all the moves I've made, I've made because my wife has helped me make. Right. My, my, my career partner has pushed me at the moment and she gets credit for this one as well. I probably wouldn't have done it. I would have been too scared, you know, like, so like go for it, whatever. So whenever you have a partner who's willing to take those risks with you, it makes it a little bit easier. So I, I have to give Mary Beth some credit there. The biggest move was leaving Cadbury because I was, you know, I was really in a good position. I had done a lot of things and we had done a lot, but to become a president for, you know, it, I, I was named the president of, of uh, RC Poland to be a C, you know, to, to be, to take that leap. It wasn't going to happen for me at Cadbury anytime soon. It didn't appear. It ended up happening very quick, as I just told you the story, right? Fortuitous. So I took that leap. I put, I would have never taken that leap if I didn't have people in my corner. That was the big, that was the, and I was scared to, death. yes. So going to work for Nelson. You know, I think, I think that's just, I mean, just couldn't have had a better experience. I think that's that's the trick. The episode we just had before you with the, the founder of uh, one of the founders of Canva, major company, and he had started his own company, had failed. And, and then his wife was like, why don't you go meet with those two people who wanted to start that design business? <laughs> and same story, he said, you know, she, and I asked him, I said, would you have gone and met with them on your own? He's like, no, but that's why they make a great partnership. So it's, it's, it's nice to know that your wife really was supporting you and behind you. And I, I think that's such an important part 
when especially raising a family and and in business. And I want to ask you, going to Snapple, buying it, as it as you said, you had to build it up. What what were the challenges for you, especially at that age and, and doing this before you ended up selling it back to Cadbury? Yeah, it was actually simpler than than you think, right? So again, I wasn't the one; I was part of a team that orchestrated this. So I can't take the only lot of credit here. Um, Mike Weinstein was a big part of this. The brand had been bought uh, by Quaker, and and Quaker had had done a bunch of things, you know, interesting things that they thought were best for the brand that didn't work out. A couple of examples might have been, you know, that they were a Midwestern company. They were uncomfortable with ads on Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh. Snapple was never uncomfortable with things like that. It, Snapple, it, we're on both Rush and Howard. We got 50 flavors. There's something for everybody. Like, we're trying to be apolitical. It's, not, it's, not, it's impossible to be apolitical these days, but in those days, you could you could kind of be apolitical. But that that's something that, like, Quaker Fruits was uncomfortable with. I don't blame them for being uncomfortable. Those guys yeah. were on the edge, for sure. Um, so they stopped advertising on both Rush and Howard. As soon as we bought the company back, Mike went down to visit both of those players. They were excited to have new ad buys, and they never stopped talking about them. So whatever we bought, we got about 100x because they just were individuals, and they had a connection to this brand. And the brand itself is an interesting brand. Beverages are different. It just had a a personality that was beyond imagination. Uh, if, you could, if a brand could have a personality, and I do think they do, that brand connected with lots. And so that's just an example. They hadn't introduced a new product in three years. We introduced a new product in 30 days. You know, <laughs> we took an existing fruit punch, we put a label on it, we put it out. Do you remember Wendy, the sample lady? Of course. Okay, so she was too controversial for Quaker, so we brought Wendy back. We said she had been on a tropical island. She came back. <laughs> It's a tropical island recipe. It's a tropical fruit punch. And it was a, all the rest was history. We just started turning around. And from that day, the other thing that happened was we went on a listening and we listened to the distribution system and we listened what how they had been wronged and how they had been taken advantage of. And we just repaired some basic stuff, really basic stuff. Like, and then all of them were rooting for us. And most importantly, they all started spending their money on Snapple. Right, all this distribution system. So that's what you really try to do, align all these interests. And because it all happened at one time, the resurgence was great. Cadbury ended up buying it back, you know, buying it a couple of years later. And, you know, there's plenty written on that. Yeah, it's amazing how that worked. And I listened to Stern for probably 20 years. And growing up in later years, it was all Snapple, Snapple. I mean, that was like, I think, from his standpoint, like the first major brand that got behind him. And of, of course, remembering Wendy growing up here in New York too, from Long Island, like, you know, the perfect persona. But I love what you did there. Tell me, you rebuild it yourself, Mike, the entire team, Nelson. And then you go back to CAD. How did that work out? And what did they end up buying the business for if it's public? It was public. They bought the business for a billion four after Nelson had paid 300 million and borrowed most of it about, I think it was 24 months. It might have been 26 or 23 or whatever. It was, it was a short period of time that the um, return on investment there was pretty high uh, for, for that group. We had packaged, we had, there were two other businesses, uh, a few other businesses. There was, um, it was at the time the Snapple Beverage Group. So we had 
uh, a brand called Mystic, which was a city brand, had been here for a long time as part of that brand. And we owned a brand called Stewart's Root Beer at the time. Um, later, we bought some other brands. But so that was the group. And we owned RC Cola, and I was running RC Cola. So that's the unit that bought Snapple. We put that all together and sold that for a billion four. Most of that value was in Snapple. Uh, there was some value in those other brands as well. What was the feeling personally going back to this Cadbury, obviously, where you had great relationships, connections, but personally, how was that walking back in those doors and after what had happened in, in such a short period of time? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, it was uh, it was um, it was a time that Cadbury was really moving in a lot of different directions and really putting together its final step. All that stuff that we I talked about, Snapple was one of the things that was like the icing on the cake. The brand portfolio was now complete. Now let's finish the bet. Let's finish the job. Like so, that was really the, the motivation. So we ended up consolidating a whole bunch of things. I ended up running Mott's and Snapple together at one point which wasn't uh, really what I wanted to be doing at that moment. Um, but we did move that all together and put together a company that then became Dr. Pepper Snap. Kerrig then later acquired that company in its entirety, and that's Kerrig Dr. Pepper now. So, But that's the, the business that, that had uh, come together. It was a little different having gone outside. Um, and I would say that, I'll just leave it there. I just leave it that it's, it was just a little different having gone outside and going back. It wasn't quite the same. Yeah. You know? And people look at, at, at others who have achieved and say, okay, well, I want to get that too. So it was mixed. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine being in a in a tough spot, especially in that spot, but also gave you this opportunity post and 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 now we'll get in. I'd love to get into kind of later on and 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 how that experience probably helped you. But how did you go from there? As I said, the like these incredible brands, Snapple, Mott's, and then you be you know, I know from us knowing each other. Then all of a sudden, you're you're CEO of Voss Water, and I think when you became CEO, it wasn't now everyone knows Voss Water. How, how did that opportunity come up and why did you take that opportunity? Yeah, so um, this is after I left uh, Cadbury. I left in 2007 and I was on a contract. I had to sort of sit out the door so I could, do some, I could do some investing and I could sit on boards. And so I used that time, it was almost two years, to really look. I probably looked at 500 different companies with a partner of mine that uh, we could acquire or help or manage or, you know, we were looking tried to put together a company that would maybe put together a few of them. So we were out looking for ideas. I met the ownership, the uh, original ownership at Norway through that process. They had a, they had a busted auction recently. So they tried to raise capital and they couldn't. The company was really in a shambles at the time. It was bankrupt, but they were just too proud to declare bankruptcy. So they kept on putting a little bit of money in. And they were about to close the doors, and it was one last day's effort. They had gone through, they had, they, had, they had moved on from the founders, the ownership. They had moved from the founders, they had spent a lot of money, and they established this brand. And I would say, differ a little bit from your comment, the brand at the time I took it over was still pretty shiny. People, they didn't, nobody understood what was behind that, which was not shiny. 
So uh, I wasn't going to take it. A friend of mine convinced, it, convinced me, like, that's the one. That's the one. He kept on saying to me, he kept on calling me. He took another job, my partner. He, he moved to Indiana. He's like, that's the one. That's the one. So I ended up going to Norway, meeting, you know, doing my own diligence. I did M&A. So I flew to Norway and made sure there was a plant and there was water. And <laughs> all of that checked out great and uh, met all the Norwegian ownership. Wonderful to me. And so I agreed to do it. I made an investment the very last day of 2009. And uh, literally December 31st, 2009, I started the next day or two days later. And all of my friends thought I was insane. Like, what are, what are, you, what are you doing? A bottled water company in 2009 now to that time frame is we're in a kind of, a, I guess it wasn't a recession. I don't think we ever called it a recession. Yeah. It was a dip. It was a dip. And if you remember, nobody was traveling. So the volume yeah. had gone from multi-million. It was, it was really in trouble and it was losing a lot of money. So you had to have a lot of imagination, but the brand was interesting. So I took on that challenge because of that. And like in other times in my life, things immediately got better. Things out of my control. Consumer confidence started coming back. People started traveling. And so I could cobble together some momentum as a result of that. We did change some very thing. We did some significant changes to what was going on, but the environment around me got better. And that was great timing. I had to raise capital. I went out and raised capital, which is no fun. Nobody likes doing that. Um, and two years later, we raised capital from a private equity player. We had cobbled things together until then. At that moment, had we not raised that, I think we're closing doors. I don't think we were making payroll that next day. Um, so it came down to that. But I think many entrepreneurs will tell you the same stories. And I was lucky I inherited it. And, uh, we got the money, got in the bank, made payroll, and um, the rest was just, just started growing every every month from uh, every quarter, quarter, quarter. And we had eight years straight, 32 straight quarters of growth. That's um, amazing. And then we sold that company to um, an independent investor out of China who still holds the control of shares in that company. Yeah, I I uh, I can't whenever I go to a hotel or I see a bottle of Oz water, I'm always thinking about you. Especially when I check out and I'm paying like 10 bucks at the charge at the hotel. <laughs> it, was, um, it was a very distinct brand. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we often talked about that. You know, it was a thoughtful consumption. When you were buying Boss, usually with, with somebody that you liked or you're trying to impress somebody yeah, or, yeah. or you're on a business trip. No, you, you, so. you saw that. Question for you. You had said you, you were debating taking that job and business. Did you also think back to what Nelson did with Snapple and then what you and Mike and the rest of the team helped do? Was that also playing into your decision to go for kind of a distressed business? Yes, it was part of it because I hired all the little Snapple guys <laughs> and gals, right? So men and women from Snapple, I hired them. I hired a bunch of them. You know, it was so that team was excited to something again, you know, like that. And so they embraced that challenge. And so they knew kind of the playbook and I didn't have to teach them anything. And I got to put them in the, the, the group I inherited at Boss was spectacular. There was only a few left, but they were good. They were tough and disciplined and smart and could do a lot with a little. So I didn't have to, like, I had carte blanche. I could have changed anybody out I wanted to, but they were just great. So I just systematically dropped what we didn't have in over time over the first couple of years, while we didn't have any capital, we just, and then when 
I got capital. We made, we made the, the rest of the hires, if you would, that we could afford. And then we went for it. And, and that's, that's what happened. How hard was that for you when you were at that point where you really knew you needed that, that capital, like you said, closing the doors the, you know, the next day, which a lot of business people, entrepreneurs, people who run brands go through. Was that a tough time for you personally, I would imagine? Yeah, I had never um, really failed at anything in business, you know, so that was failure in the, at the moment for sure. And I felt that and it was not just me. It was people that I had recruited and people I told stay on and hang in there. Now I know you have a job offer, but we're going to make it. So it was a lot. You have a lot of, you end up, you know, with a lot of tethers there that you're thinking about at that moment. It's not just you. There's other people and their families and, you know, all counting on. And so I, I felt that sure. And uh, I felt euphoric when, when the next day they said we're going to, and the money came in, you know, you know, until the wire happens, you know? So, so yeah, absolutely. Just the way I would sure. And, you know, most people would feel it. Yeah, I could only imagine. I mean, just from that stage and it's amazing, right? To think like what you built, what you created, but if that didn't happen, what would not have happened? And like you also said, you have have had so much success and, and continue to. I know you also tell me about after the sale and then getting in, involved with a lot of different brands from an investment standpoint. Uh, we had the founder of Health Aid Kombucha on uh, Dinah uh, on this podcast, which I know you you got heavily involved with, and some other brands. Tell me, tell me what that was like for you post uh, Voss. Yeah, Dinah was a tremendous, is a tremendous CEO and leader, and so um, for sure it's great meeting her among that. So, but I'm talking about Dinah Chat now um, from Health Aid. The uh, that experience has been really interesting and really great, right? So it was, I never envisioned myself working on the private equity side. And I, right after I left Boss, I had some time to think about what I wanted to do. And I was contacted by Bill Anderson, who runs First Beverage, and said that you think this would be a great role for me. And so I, I took that, spent, you know, the last five years there, four and a half years there. Um, and I left there recently. But that was a great experience. And that was mainly mentoring. CEOs in startup companies, as well as trying to provide certain amount of sort of structure and understanding and experience around growing early stage companies, as well as startup companies. And I sat on five different boards for the, so it was a wide scope of things. So really great. Got to learn a couple of different businesses, met a bunch of people on top of that, saw many, many deals in the beverage business. So a lot of what was going on, so a tremendous education, really great place to be. Did you, thinking back and, and being an operator, running businesses, and then being put in into that role, did you enjoy that as a really mentor to some of these people, brands? Is that something that you really enjoyed as opposed to maybe operating a company? I wouldn't say as opposed to. I don't think those are mutually yeah. Yes, I, you know, I, I definitely enjoy mentoring the CEOs, and I definitely enjoy running companies. Like, so I don't think those things are exclusive to one another. You can continually learn. I learned from Dinah watching her. You know, you can learn from all different types of leadership, and so I continue to learn. And it's important that you keep yourself open-minded because you know things evolve, and you know we're doing things today that we would have never thought we were doing a few years ago. And, leverage for employment and stuff, things that are different that, you know, if you don't evolve, you just left behind. So 
that's what an experience, that's what mentoring other CEOs and trying to think through what they're going through is, uh, helps you sort of continue to round out yourself. And so I, I continue to grow through that relationship, through those relationships. Of course, nobody had any playbook for a pandemic. So mentoring people on a pandemic. <laughs> and there was no, there was no playbook. No, no. Yeah. That was interesting for sure. At the beginning of the interview, you, you mentioned what I think or looking at it probably is a, a superpower of yours and, and the reason you've done so incredibly well with within this world of the beverage business is you talked about curiosity and it's really incredible that you were asking those questions and taking it full circle. What I love is now you're talking about people who are starting big businesses, you were you were mentoring. And it seems like you still have that curiosity and you still want to learn. And I'm curious if you think that the curiosity part of it, the learning is really kind of been a difference maker for you as opposed to anyone who might just put their head down and say, I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, I suppose, Rob, you know, I never really thought about it that way, but I suppose it's something that I can't stop, right? So it just comes like I have a question, a question drives people around me crazy, you know? So I'm going to stop asking those questions. So sometimes it's a downside to it. I just think like, listen, you know, we're in a, we live in a dynamic world, you know, and people are dynamic. And while we sort of stay the same in many ways, we evolve the way we think. And at the end of the day, business is about getting people to do things for the most part, still at least, at least the beverage business has not been over, been overtaken by completely by AI. Um, robotics uh, yet. Um, so it's still a lot of people interact. And so understanding people and, and their evolution and what they might be thinking about what might be important to them today that might not have been important to them yesterday is uh, is interesting. Although I have to say, I did read this morning that Snapple was going to use AI for Snapple facts. So we introduced Snapple facts when I was there. We didn't have any AI to do the facts, but uh, I thought that was interesting how, how things have come full circle, right? There you go. I love I love the Snapple facts. Those are great. It was a pretty genius promotional move that you guys did. And, you know, I loved it's so funny because even going back to Snapple and it was such a major brand in, in my life, still is. And thinking about going through those phases and Howard Stern. And now it's amazing that you're looking 20 years later and really recreating, doing the same thing. For you now, as someone who's, you just talked about it, AI and, and, a, and living in a dynamic world that's changing so quickly, where are your future plans? What are you looking to do now? Can you talk about currently your thoughts and, and staying in the beverage business? And where do you see yourself? Yeah, I'm staying in the business. I consider it the CPG business, but I have a specialty in beverage. So I like, I don't, you know, I have an affinity for beverages. And that's where most of my experiences have been, although I've been in on the food in food businesses as well. So I'm I'm interested in staying in beverage. I have the ability to be connected to the beverage world in many ways because I've been in it for so long. So that's really helpful and fortunate that way. I have an advisory group that it's not big, just just so large, just a group of one. Um, and I have a couple of players that I'm helping along at this point informally, but I, I will I will stay in the business of advising early stage and growth companies. And I think that's something of, of great interest to me. Awesome. I have to ask you one question before, before we end this, because I, I think I've 
only interviewed maybe one other of the folks over the last 20 years we've played basketball with uh, Vasu from started crossover. He's at courtside ventures. And I said, Voss, if you had to compare your basketball game to your, to your style in business, what would it be? And for you as an athlete, and if you look at that as a basketball player, what would you say in terms of maybe what's made you successful on the court and also kind of translates into the business world? Yeah, I, I, I wish I had as much success on the basketball court as I have in the business world. I could set the record straight. I would say scrappiness. And you know my game, so I'll just scrappy. <laughs> so, just like mine, scrappy you know, and hustle. <laughs> bump the cutters. So like, yeah. you know, I would say bump the cutters for those basketball players out there. You know, so, um, and that's been my business life as well. And it's helpful in the beverage world because we're a physical business. Despite all the advances in AI and what we just talked about, I'm, I'm in an office here in the midtown in, in, in the city as you are somewhere in the city. And I watch people struggle to dr- deliver the drinks I'm drinking today up into this office building. And none of that's changed, yeah. right? So still people on a truck getting a ticket downstairs, screaming at somebody traffic, whatever, <laughs> and eventually that drink gets up here where I can drink it, right? So it's very physical, and that has not changed much. There's no dynamic nature to that. And so that scrappiness and understanding that it's a ground level business and sort of the way I've thought about things has always been helpful. Yeah, and the scrappiness from like Advos and and even Snapple when, you know, taking, you, you need it. I remember coming down to your office or the Voss offices years ago, I forget, just talking and I wish they were scrap. I mean, it, it was, I thought I had a scrappy office, you know, but <laughs> I used to like bringing the investors there because we say we're not wasting the money on aesthetics. Like we have put every penny into the business. I had the former CFO, CMO of Snapple and the former chief strategy officer of Gadget Shrub sitting in my bullpen. You know, like it happily sitting in the bullpen. Um, I love it. And I love it. And the, the young people who sat around them were the biggest beneficiaries. Yeah. And now there are people who like could sit next to someone with that level of experience and just listen to them talk because that's all because you had to, you were right next to them. And so that really, we had a great group. And as I said to you before, that's that boss team that I inherited was superbly talented. Yeah. Well, listen, congratulations. It's just incredible when I see in your resume and the brands that you've ran and, and built and, to as you gave credit to mentors you've had and to now doing that yourself uh it's it's really so important and appreciate coming on and and sharing your story it's uh definitely been inspiring so thanks again yeah thank you rob enjoyed it enjoyed it myself and that's our episode if you like what you heard please subscribe to how success happens wherever you get your podcasts we come out with a new episode every wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business 
Or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.